The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I put this word Anknupfungspunkt on the board for the benefit, exclusive benefit, of Mr. Aleph. You know by this time who Mr. Aleph is. He was our speaker yesterday. Now, this means, of course, you can see that the blackboard was made for the word, <laughs> not the word for the blackboard. In other words, that word has been on there a million times already. And he's going to stand it once more for the last time. Now, let's start then and see whether we can once more survey briefly the idea of point of contact, Knupfungspunkt, and then also faith and reason, and then go on to the question of the theistic proofs, reserving mostly for next hour the problem of common grace. Now, we have seen what is the problem with respect to the point of contact. As Christians, we have been told that we are creatures made in the image of God, that Adam, the first man, represented all mankind, that in his disobedience, all mankind became disobedient, that they are therefore covenant breakers, that there are not 57 varieties of peoples, but there are only two kinds of people, and they aren't Dutch and (laughs) non-Dutch. They are covenant keepers and covenant breakers. Even a few Dutch are covenant breakers. Now, uh, no. Now, covenant breakers are those that have jumped off the Queen Mary because they think they can get there better and easier and on their own. And they want to be somebody on their own. Now, that's what we mean by autonomy. And we have traced the notion of autonomy Through Greek philosophy, Thales says all is water, all is air, all is flux, all is static. And the idea was expressed climactically by Socrates himself when he said to to one of his friends, he says, I believe what you say, all right, in a way, but I have to know for myself, regardless of what gods and men say about it. Otherwise, I have only an extrinsic definition. I must have an intrinsic definition, one that I myself, by my principles of rationality, resting in myself, converging in me as ultimate, I can see through. Now, it is this principle, therefore, of rationality, which is expressed first of all and best of all by Parmenides, according to which every non-Christian thinker thinks. He has to have satisfaction that he, by the principles of logic, the logic of non-contradiction, he can see through things exhaustively. Well, then, if he does see through things exhaustively, it is no longer he that sees through them because he is no longer there as an individual. He is absorbed into this principle. Now, at the same time, as this went on, 
you had Plato saying all being is timeless. Parmenides was right, but Heraclitus was also right in saying that one aspect of reality is pure flux. And we have somehow to get a realm of pure timeless being which answers to the Parmenidean requirement and to the Socratic principle of autonomy. We have to have somehow some reality given to this non-being here. And so Aristotle calls it potentiality. It is potential being. We can say something about pure contingency. We have to. Not that there is any knowledge, uh, properly speaking, of contingent being. Knowledge, says Aristotle, is of universals only. There is no knowledge of history because that consists in part, at least, of contingency. There is no possibility about saying, of saying anything about the future because that is open and contingent. Nobody, gods any more than men, can say what the future will bring forth. That's chance. Now, this is what is called a potentiality-actuality scheme of Aristotle. The organon, which is his principle, as you know, of logic, it gives expression to that. The whole of his philosophy is brought into expression by what he calls the analogy of being and analogy of thinking. Here be being, according to Plato, and thinking are identical. They are both equally eternal and thinking, real thinking, is absorption into being and is identical with being. That's what is later called the the adequacy of thought and things. In other words, the coterminity, the identity. Man is absorbed into being when he's here, down below, as a rational animal. What's neath, beneath the midriff is the will, the emotions. That relates Ulysses to the foxes. But what's above the midriff, his intellect, relates him to the gods. He is intellectually participant with deity. He isn't created. He couldn't have been created. There can't be a god who has created. There cannot be a god who knows himself as an individual. Because, you see, if he knew himself as an individual, he would have, because he is, as an individual, almighty and this and that, he has authority over us. We want no authority over us. We want our God, any God, who tells us what to do. He may be a commander-in-chief, but he must nevertheless justify what he says to us by an appeal to reality, to being. And I must, if necessary, be able to bypass his words, even if it's General Arthur MacArthur or Eisenhower, I can still appeal to President, who was it, that threw MacArthur out? Truman. He's got a horrible article in this week's time. <laughs> now, don't you see? In other words, there is a principle of universality which is above God and man to which all that being, that's the essence of things, to which anything that wants to be understood and known must, must appeal and it must be satisfied. Now, these are the common notions the ideas that underlie every non-Christian 
philosophy. Now, you might think that modern philosophy, beginning with Kant, because it stresses the idea that time is ultimate and that contingency is just there, as Kant says, you mustn't attempt to prove, intellectually prove, these things that happen over here because that's an impossibility. They just happen, and what happens in history may not have been as well as have been, and therefore is due to pure contingency and pure accident or pure contingency. You can't rationalize. Now, therefore, modern philosophy, all of it, since Kant stresses the fact that one aspect of man's own being is pure contingency and that one aspect of all being in general is pure contingency. Now, however, this is only a matter of emphasis. Even Greek philosophy in all of the schools, but notably in Aristotle, and I'm picking particularly on Aristotle because he's the one, of course, that underlies the whole discussion of the proofs and things of that sort of natural theology. Even ancient philosophy had its non-being, its pure contingency, and all that Aristotle did is to say that that contrast between pure being and pure non-being isn't as absolute, isn't as dualistic, it's growth. Therefore, human history is a growth from potentiality to actuality. Gods and men, reality, without any qualification, are going, undergoing this process. Man is upward on his way to becoming actualized, to participation. Eventually, he will have lost all contingency and he will be one with deity. The trouble is, then he won't be there anymore. Because then, you see, he's not longer any perpendicular, but he has been horizontalized out of existence. None of you are old enough to know Amos and Andy, are you? Anybody here? Oh, you must be terribly old. Uh, now, Amos lived here, and Andy lived there. And they couldn't get together, and they liked to play chess. So they were so happy when the turnpike was coming through. And the turnpike continued to be built and built, and it was made wider and wider, don't you see? Wider and wider and wider. First, you see, it was still no good to have a turnpike in the middle if there were no access to the turnpike. These miserable people that put the road in here, they never asked me whether there should be an access to it here on, Church, on Willow Grove Avenue so that I could get off and on there. They never had the good sense to ask my judgment on that. <laughs> now, but Amos and Andy, they were exhilaratingly joyful when the turnpike connected them. The only thing wrong was then they were both turnpiked out of existence because, don't you see, they're not connected unless they're absolutely, with all their being, connected, the whole of them. Their being is rationality, and therefore rationality is unintelligible unless it is universal. Now, you'll have to smoke your pipe on that because I can't make it take time to try to explain it. Ask questions after a while, if you will. Now, I mean, this is the, sub, the difficulty with every form of non-Christian thinking, in this, including Aristotle, that so far as it proves anything... It disproves the existence of the Christian God. And we'll come to that in a minute. The proofs, so-called, are not just weak and bad and prove God probably 
or are only witnesses and not really proofs. They are thoroughly bad because they disprove the Christian God and prove, if they could prove, they can't, but if they could prove, they would prove the existence of God who is not the creator, who couldn't be the redeemer, who couldn't know himself. We'll come to that. Now, these, this is now the question of point of contact. How then shall we Christians find a point of contact with these people who argue that way? Whether ancient or modern philosophers or thinkers makes no difference. Well, we just can't do what the Roman Catholic has done and what traditional apologetics, Protestant apologetics, Bishop Butler has done, and which method has even been taken over by some of my finest Reformed friends, Old Princeton, B.B. Warfield, whom I greatly admire, and Charles Hodge, because, don't you see, you would sink with them. You would have contact with them. You would love your, your staying on the Queen Mary so much, somebody down there is drowning. What do you do to save him from drowning? Now, uh, who loves Mr. Olive enough that if Mr. Olive jumped over the Queen Mary and was drowning... Would you jump after him and save him? Who would love him as much? Now remember, he's an Indian, and you've got to love him, at least as long as he's here with us. <laughs> Who would, nobody loves you, Mr. Olive. Here's one man. Good for you. And that he's willing to drown in contingency with this man. Now, I mean that seriously, because, don't you see, the individual would have to say, cogito ergo sum, cogito ergo sum, Mr. Aleph. Don't you see? But he can't. What is your name? Chuck. Chuck. Now, Aleph and Chuck. <laughs> and Aleph would say, Chuck, are you here? Are you going to rescue me? He wouldn't say a thing of that sort because Chuck wouldn't be anybody and Aleph wouldn't be anybody. They would both be silent as silent could be. They couldn't hear. If they could hear, they couldn't see. They have no mouths with which to speak. In other words, the idea of self-identification is internally, eternally impossible on this position. And you are making a capital mistake if, as a Christian, you have what it takes. You are on the Queen Mary. You are getting across the ocean. What you must do is throw out the lifeline. Must you not? That's what you do. Here, you see him still? He's just about to, about to disappear. Olive is and Chuck too. Now, who loves Chuck enough to go down after Chuck if you want to go? Anybody? Huh? Wouldn't you? He's a nice guy. <laughs> Nobody goes. <laughs> well, you are very wise, because otherwise you would all drown with Chuck, as well as with Olive. Now, don't you see? I mean this literally. You would. The principle of contingency is that which they say is the basis of individuation, which makes the individual to be an individual, and the only way to escape contingency is to be absorbed into abstract, timeless being or rationality. In practice, what man is supposed to be a cross between those two. He's flying up and down, up to 
rationality, when he gets ground to pieces there, then he goes down again to escape that, and then he drowns with contingency. What you must do to have point of contact, there is no trouble on the point of contact, because actually Olive and Chuck are human beings, just as you are. When Lazarus was in the tomb and Jesus said, I say unto thee, Arise, he heard, because Christ gave him power to hear, and life to respond. Well now, if you only do what Christ did with respect to Lazarus, not cater to the standards, the problematics of the natural man, they are false. They are satanically inspired, originated. And don't you see, that's why the God of this world, as Paul says, deceives men into thinking that they can explain science that way or philosophy, that they can account for anything, account for counting, if you will. They can't. Nobody can count for anything on that basis. Identification, you can't apply the law of contradiction or of excluded middle, the laws of logic, are up in the sky until they get in touch with this. And if they get in touch, they are correlative too. They are not ever something by means of which you can explain, except that you explain them to pieces. Now, therefore, just like the prodigal son, when he was at the swine trough, he had jumped off the Queen Mary. He had spent all his substance with riotous living. Don't you see? Whenever he would treat somebody, he would say, look, it's on me. Here, Chuck, you buy yourself a cup of coffee. Now, don't you see it's on me? But he hadn't ever earned a dime. That was all money that he had taken from the old man illegitimately. <laughs> now, don't you see? It wasn't coming to him. His inheritance still after the father was dead. But he wanted it now. And he got it now, not willingly, but unwillingly. He didn't get the father's blessing. He got the father's curse resting upon him. And he had to go to the swine trough and in vain fill his belly with the husk that the swine do eat. And he wasn't a swine, so he couldn't fill his belly. And consequently, he saw that he was crucifying his own rationality by having left the father's home. Now, that's what we have to say. My friends, we don't have common notions of your sort. We have common notions because your notion of yourself you know is wrong, and you know you're holding under what Paul says in Romans 1, that all are those that nontis tontheon, knowing God, we all have that common notion that we are creatures of God, we know it, even though in our philosophy we're trying to repress it. Now that, in general, is the matter, I would say, of common notions. You, um, it the traditional method is futile, is self-defeating to put yourself on the other fellow's place for argument's sake. He can understand you intellectually because God has given him intellects and brains as good as yours or better. Many, many discoveries have been made, most of them, by non-believers. Of course they have. Why is that? Not because his principles are right. If his principles, if he had to do it on terms of his principles, Nobody would have ever discovered anything. But because his principles are wrong and the Christian principles are right. In other words, if you came on this campus over here 
and you just meant quite of your own to dig up a few of these trees and so forth, please ask Mr. Cushy before you do that. He's a tree lover, and he, he doesn't like it if you do. Now, you don't take things off here and investigate whether this belongs to Westminster Seminary, doesn't it? You're not, say, you would, somebody over there would like to prove that it belongs to Princeton Seminary, <laughs> don't you see? And you say, I want to prove it belongs to Westminster Seminary. Now, we're, you have your hypothesis, and I have my hypothesis, and we'll have to find out who is right. Well, don't you see, then you're already granting that possibly it may not be Westminster Seminary to whom this belongs, which is already an insult to that sign over there. Now, don't you see? This much, then, for the question of contact. There isn't any problem as to how to get in touch with people. If only you don't try the impossible, which establishes him in his wicked ways, leaves him under the wrath of God on the way to death, eternal death. If you are interested in reaching him where he is and to tell him what it is, then you must not do what the traditional method has done. It doesn't do those things. Then you must do simply what the Bible does everywhere. Paul says, knowing God, you are, a, you are somebody that knows you're a creature of God and that you have rebelled against God. Your conscience tells you when every time you do something wrong, all of that. Now, that's because, and because you are what you don't think you are. Now, that's throwing out the lifeline to him, to Mr. Olive. And now, if I, when I am on the Queen Mary, I put a belt around my middle. And don't you see, I don't jump after him unless I have the other end of the rope tied on a post, or what do they call that, on the Queen Mary. Then I can swim around with Olive and say, dear little Indian Olive, you little critter, aren't you getting weary of going around in circles a million years, a billion years, an infinite number of years? You're getting, aren't you getting tired of it? Yes, he is. But still he won't give up. Now, don't you see, that is the stubbornness, the satanicness of man's hostility to God. And that's what he must be told. And he isn't told that on the traditional. That Thomas never says anything like that. He never confronts him with the triune God of the Bible and with the Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life and the Holy Spirit, through whose life-giving power alone man must be brought to life, ye must be born again. Now, no Thomistic philosopher says that in terms of his philosophy as the, as the basis of the possibility of knowing him what he is. Then you've got to read Calvin's Institutes, page 1. Man is what he is, what God has told him, namely a creature of God, a sinner against God, and saved from sin by the death and resurrection of Christ and by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Well, now, then that is also, as far as point of contact is concerned, the question of faith and reason. You approach that in exactly the same way. You see, it is, again, not effective to say that, well, there are some that say everything must be according to reason. Others say everything must be faith or 
faith is first and reason is second, or, or others say, let's have a cross or let's have a combination. See, that's already accepting the problematics of the unbeliever. Because don't you see, that allows that Aristotle, when he is talking about reason and, of, and about faith, or the Greeks, that they were right in what they said about what is the relation fundamentally. Here's reason. Reason is that power in man by which he legislates for chance reality. It is that tool, it is that gift to man, or he may speak of it as a gift of the gods, but what he says in effect is that there is no God that has created him, and therefore it is no God that has given him intellect, created him, or no. It's an eternally self-existing thing, even if it hasn't existed more than a few years in Socrates or any other individual human being. The intellect of man is nonetheless conceived of as an eternally existing something, just as eternally existing as is that God about which this reason talks. Well, now then, by reason, you can go so far. By reason, you can say that reality is analogical. And then by faith, what's, mis what, what's left you can say by faith. Plato brings it out very well when he says we must first of all reason our way through the problems and not listen to the myths, not listen to anything that claims to be a revelation. But after we are all done with reason and we are stuck, as we do get stuck, all of us, then we say, don't you see, that's faith. Now, you can take this illustration in Plato's dialogue, for instance, the Republic. Here is the line of the Republic. Here is God, and here is... We have said this is good and that is evil. Now, God is back of the good, says Plato, but surely God is not back of evil. There must be, therefore, an other principle, equally ultimate with the good in that other world, that is back of this evil, which means that the other world, so far as concepts are concerned, is as impossible as offering us unity between the world and the things that I think as anything can be. But now, here comes Diotima, the inspired. Diotima, it always takes the ladies to help us stupid men out of our troubles. She says, you can't rationalize, intellectualize your way into a unified interpretation of life, if you are to have unity, you must have it by faith. Now, faith then means a non-rational, completely irrational acceptance on somebody's authority of what's up there, nobody knows what's there. In other words, the conception of faith on a non-Christian basis is that act is corresponds to that aspect of reality which is purely contingent. Now, that makes the... What's the relation between faith and reason here? Well, intellect of man is a gift that God has given to his creatures, and then God has revealed himself in man, made his presence known in the world. He says in Romans that the Godhead... His glory, his manifestation is all over him. 
It's there for the taking. In other words, it isn't a question of working up from the bottom whether these facts are revelational of God. They are that. I've told you that. Therefore, we believe it. Therefore, faith is belief in the verbal, direct revelation of God as it explains the facts of the universe here in this world, ourselves and the world as created, the world as providentially controlled, the world as coming to judgment in history. All that is a comprehensive statement of what man by his intellect must do. He must seek to understand this, not a la Parmenides. Then he would do this. Then he would wipe out the distinction. He would have to say, if I am to understand this by reason, I must wipe out the creator-creature distinction. Otherwise, I don't understand the ultimate, and I must understand the ultimate if I'm to understand anything. Now, don't you see, that is the Parmenidean, the non-Christian requirement of reason. And therefore, the alternative or the dialectical component that goes with that is pure non-rationality. Irrationality and rationality were brought into the world by Adam at the same time. You recall that here was Adam and Eve, and here was God, and here was the devil. And the devil said to Eve, Hath not God said that you should do this? Yes, says Eve, I think it's very reasonable. Well, says Satan, I don't think it's reasonable, because by reason you ought to be able to see through this thing. Parmenides will soon enough tell you that. Well, unfortunately, Parmenides hadn't been there yet when Eve came on the scene, and she had to do without him, without benefit of Parmenides. Well, don't you see? So Satan says, stand on your own feet and say, what God says is an hypothesis, one hypothesis, what I say, that you will go up higher. God says you will go down lower. Take this and reason, to use reason right, you must have, therefore, a criterion, a standard by which you judge which hypothesis is true and which is false. There is no other place that you can find that criterion except in yourself. Your sense of what is true and false is that which you can consistently, according to the law of contradiction, think. Now, that was putting God, putting mystery around God, saying, God, you aren't so big as you say you are. You and Satan and Adam and I we're all little circles, and here's mystery, contingency, surrounding all of us, which means to say, on every non-Christian basis, the idea of faith presupposes, as it is presupposed by the notion of absolute, non-intelligible, non-rational something. It's best expressed in modern times by Kant's distinction when he says, here's the noumenal world, here's the time and space on which we impose the categories of causality, substance, and modality. And then at the edge over there, we stand, and that's the noumenal world of which man knows nothing intellectually. He cannot even know himself as a noumenal being. He is a noumenal being to be free, because in this world, you are not free. 
the psychiatrist put you on the couch and tell you what you are. And here, however, you're free, but then you don't know yourself. But you have to say God is possibly there because he, like myself, is free. I want him to be free. And I see in this world that some people who deserve good things don't get them and others who don't deserve them do get them. And I want a God who will punish the bad people, the ones I don't like, and give good things to the good people, particularly when rationing of oil comes pretty soon. Now, don't you see? That's Kant's God. Now, Kant has, we'll come to that, disproved the, the, the argument supposedly, but he has told us that he disproved God to make room for faith. He has limited science to the phenomenal. That's the field of knowledge, science, to make room for faith. Now, don't you see what a terrible mistake it is, as has been so constantly done, even by Orthodox Christians, to say, oh, now it's wonderful. Kant has really made room for faith. Now, the Roman Catholics keep saying that Luther's position and Kant's position were identical, that Kant's position was only a further explication of Luther's. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth than that. Luther said man is free when he obeys God, who is his creator and his redeemer through Christ. Therein, Kant says, man is free if he cuts himself loose altogether from God and says he knows nothing about a God like that. Well, if you know nothing about him, you have no responsibility to him. And consequently, you can live as you please, except that your own moral consciousness, the categorical imperative within you, this self produces an imperative which says, don't do this, don't do that. And that's why you act like a decent suburbanite should. should. Now, don't you see? This illustrates what faith is and what its relation is to reason on a non-Christian basis. Now, then let's go on from there because we want some time for discussion. To the proofs, well, we can now be much briefer about the proofs because, you see, the proofs start by presupposing this false notion of common notions, by this presupposing this false notion of faith and reason, Thomas, I have this book here by Gilson, the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas, and you can see Gilson's famous book on the spirit of medieval philosophy in which he discusses these matters and justifies altogether in both books the philosophy of Thomas and his proofs. He deals with these proofs here in detail in this book. Now, first of all is the idea of common notion. That is to say, that means the common notions of Scripture, that is, of a man being made in the image of God and all men having that but repressing it, that's what Aristotle suppresses. That's not what he wants. Those are not the notions. because And that's why Roman Catholicism and Thomas Aquinas, in wanting to reach people who have been brought up on this Greek philosophy, he takes their philosophy as though its principles were proper. Now, its principles, as we have seen, are autonomy, pure contingency, abstract rationality. Now, it is in terms of those principles 
Parmenides, Heraclitus, that Aristotle develops his idea of the analogy of being. Analogy of being. Being is one being. It is not creator being and creature being. That distinction must be wiped off the map first. You must have a clean slate. You must do what the prodigal did. Leave the father's home. You can certainly ask the father first. You have to get whatever substance you're going to have from the father. There isn't any other source. But you never admit that to the people on, to whom you set up the, uh, for the beers. Don't you see? So now, after this, Thomas's philosophy is based, frankly, exclusively, not only on Aristotle, but also, so far as participation idea is concerned, instead of creation, on Plato. He says so. Now, that means, therefore, that you have a being which is partly Parmenides, partly Heraclitus. Now, if you look at the five proofs, you will see that this is obviously so. The first proof is, as you remember, with respect to the problem of motion. There is motion in the world. It's a fact. Now, then there can't be a motion, back of a motion, going on ad infinitum. You have to have, therefore, one motion that is the source of the other motions, that is itself unmoved. Now, the interesting part about this is that it is taken for granted that the world is already there. Well, you say we all have to do that. Yes, but in a different way. We say it's there and that it is what it is because God has told us that it's created. He assumes that it is not created and is there as not created. Now, that comes out in the second proof, which deals with causality in a very striking fashion, as Gilson points out. He says, Thomas is the validity of the argument, as Thomas works it out, as he is insistent on saying, does not depend on its being a creation in time. It presupposes the eternity of the world. And then causation is a notion that can't go on indefinitely in that sort of world, because then you would have nothing but contingency. You have to have a primary cause, which is this kind of a cause, which is correlative to eternity, to an eternal chance. Well, now you see both arguments thus far already exclude. They don't partially explore. It, the trouble is not, as I was told at Princeton when I was there, that one argument proves one thing, and that therefore they are cumulative, and that you mustn't expect any one argument to explain the whole thing, but that you have five. I have at home a Chinese table with five legs. Well, now, this, don't you see? Chinese, this argument is a five-legged argument, and it takes all five legs. How? Hold it up. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> to hold it up, Chuck says. He's a bright boy. <laughs> now, then the next argument, as you know, is from possibility and necessity. Now, the Christian position says that nothing could exist except what we have been told does exist because of the plan of God. 
In other words, the necessity of anything's existence lies in the plan, the counsel of God. But here, necessity is something that exists first, independently of the plan of God. And therefore, also, contingency or non-necessity. And don't you see, therefore, the whole argument constantly is, we can't prove God's existence the way Anselm did or the way St. Augustine did by saying that it's self-evident because then it would mean that we have to be, as human beings, we have to be able to see through reality exhaustively. Now notice the exact import of what he means by that. It's the Parmenidean notion of proof. The probative force of all the arguments of St. Thomas depends on the Parmenidean principle of unity. So that if you are successful in proving, then you are successful in killing the Christian God. Now, and therefore you're successful in proving, presumably, the Aristotelian notion of God, except that then you have no God that is any self-existence that has any power within him. He knows nothing of the world. He doesn't know himself. He's not a he. He's not a she. He is or she is an it. Now, yet, Gilson and the Roman Catholic thinkers don't hesitate to tell you that the Aristotelian God, the God of Aristotle, is the same God as the God of the Christian. And Gilson keeps insisting that reason and faith are distinct from one another. You can't have faith in what you can think out. They're antagonistic to one another first because you must, what Thomistic, the Thomistic philosophy, he says in so many words, is not true because it's Christian, but because it is true in terms of truth independently and prior to Christianity. Well, I just don't see, my friends, how any Christian can claim that that is doing justice by the revelation of God. If you blot it out, or if you went, if you could take your eyes out, you can't, even if you do, you couldn't help but remember that you had seen the beautiful sunshine this morning, and you've seen it so many times. But suppose you were with Plato's people that were in the cave, had never seen a thing, don't you see? And one of them, in this, para, in this paralogism, not paralogism, this allegory, leaves somehow, he's taken out. How? That's accidental on this basis. How anybody saved from blindness is not because Christ has made atonement for him and the Spirit has given him eyes to see. No, it is by accident that he came in there. It's by accident that he comes out. And so he comes out and he sees the light of the sun and then he goes down again, all ready to give the gospel of the light to his blind brethren. But, of course, they don't understand a word of what he says. So they say, up he went, down he came, and he's as blind as the rest. And when he keeps talking about these things, we're getting tired of it pretty soon. Do you remember the story of the blind man that fell in the valley? I mean, the man with one eye that fell into the valley of the blind? Well, he fell over the edge. And this was the valley of the blind. I guess it's in Mexico somewhere. I know, I guess it's in India, isn't it? Huh? It moved last night. Well, don't you see? Hear this poor, 
boy, he has eyes and he sees things, but they're all blind and they have a university and they have a psych, uh, a psychology department and the chief of the psychologists there, there, you know, and then this boy falls in love with one of the sweet girls over there. Boys have a tendency to do, don't you see? <laughs> Even blind ones. Now, he falls in love with his blind girl and then he asks her father whether he could marry her. And he thinks, oh, you talk so wildly, so fantastically. You must be a dreamer. You don't, you don't have your feet on the ground. You talk about seeing the light of the sun and colors of the rainbow. That's all a mirage. But if you will have yourself examined by the chief psychologist in our university, and if he passes on you favorably, I'll let you marry my daughter. So he goes there. What does the psychologist propose? Simply to have his eyes taken out. That would solve the problem nicely. Then he would also be blind, except that he would still be remembering these things. Well, I'm not going to tell you what happened, but the point is that a Christian cannot satisfy the requirements of the spiritually blind and dead men unless he takes his own eyes out and no longer tells them that he has the light because he has been given it by grace and that they can have the light if they will repent, and if God and his grace gives them light. Now, that means that the, the moral argument, the degrees of goodness, that's the problem of evil. Now, Jacques Maritain has a little book on God and evil, and of course, the assumption here is that existence is eternal, temporal existence, and that the ethical, moral qualities of it, they are also eternal. There has been no historic fall, no disobedience, no curse brought upon man because of this disobedience, no substitutionary atonement necessary to save man out of that attitude of disobedience. It is all being, so to speak, out of luck. You're near non-being. And don't you see, when the wind blows, then you also around that's your free will because you have so little being and so all that needs to be done for you to save you is to get you up in the scale of being and that's what the Christian religion that's what Christ is for because he himself participates in this non-being and then he comes takes us all up and that's Karl Barth Karl Barth of course believes in none of these proofs except that when one of the Roman Catholics, Hans Urs von Balthasar and Hans Kuhn, when they said, Herr Karl Barth, lieber Freund, you and we are partners in the, in the primacy of grace idea, because grace is inherently that in which all men participate. And we're against this determinism of Luther and of Calvin. We together, let's stand together against this, and this arbitrariness of election of a God who saves some, not all men. Now, don't you see, today, neo-orthodoxy and Karl Barth, a neo-orthodoxy of Karl Barth, and Romanism, which is supposed to believe in the proofs, and Karl Barth, who doesn't believe in the proofs and says they're worth, worse than worthless, they stand together in common opposition of a gospel that does not need and couldn't have a substitutionary atonement 
death of Christ in which there is a finished work of Christ removing me from the wrath of God and setting me free. Don't you see? That is not per se proof, but it shows that supposedly opposites have come together. Karl Barth and St. Thomas, the Pope, and Karl Barth and the Confession of 67, they are all friends. Princeton Theological Seminary It wasn't that way in my day. It now is. You can today interpret Calvin as Dowie has done one of the men at Princeton to make him say what Bart says. But don't you see, that's not the gospel. Now, I should leave time for questions. We'll have one more hour together. Well, look, in the first place, we leave all of that to the providence of God. I don't know. I can't give you a good, logically stated reason. But it is there, as a matter of fact of history, that Justin Martyr, a fine Christian man, nevertheless tries to show that the Christian position is true because it is like it meets the requirements of the Greeks. Isn't it so? Now, that is certainly what Thomas Aquinas, it came into the church officially after you had Plotinus's position, which is the last comprehensive statement of the Greek philosophy, in which the scale of being idea is the controlling motif. And it was St. Augustine who brought out in his later life a theology which expressed the sovereign grace of God, and you have to choose between Thomas Aquinas, I mean between Augustine and Plotinus. But right after that, or soon after that, the Plotinian point of view is already largely in control of the church situation. Dionysius the Areopagite and others brought it into the church, and then they allegorized the Christian story, as, as had been done already in the early church. Well, now, Thomas appears on the scene, and he's a brilliant intellect, and he sees this to this Augustinian point of view, and then he sees the Arabian philosophers who were naturalists. He says, let's get a reasonably decent combination of things. Let's have a practical, moderate realism. That's what he developed. Well, unfortunately, that sort of thing with variations, Bonaventure and the rest of them, with variations, that was the medieval position. Then comes Luther, and comes Calvin. Now we have there the theology that gives us better than we'd ever had even than Augustine himself. They expressed Augustine's principle better than Augustine had expressed it. Brilliant as Augustine was. But you have to have pioneers. And then you stand on the shoulder of big people. Don't you see? If a little midget stands on the shoulder of a stands on the shoulder of the giant, he can see a little further than the giant saw. I stand on the shoulder of Warfield. Don't you see? In other words, I'm not cocky that I, I have not brought anything of this sort. All right, now then. Calvin himself even, as was brought up, you brought up, Calvin has something that gives you an idea that he thought of the proofs. Well, that's totally against his basic principles. See, this is revelation. 
That's how Paul, everything is revelation. The proofs start from man as autonomous and ask whether it is revelation, whether the sun is a sun. Now, you can't see a thing without the light of the sun. How can you then start with a lamp, an oil lamp, or a kerosene lamp, or a, an oil pit in a cave and ask whether there is a sun, when the very idea of any other light is that it is derivative from the sun? Psalm 94 gives, I think, striking expression to it. Shall he that hath planted the ear not hear? That's not proofs. That's saying, if you, the derivative, hears, how much the more will the original hear? It isn't, here's a little child, there's a man. I wonder, that father, whether the father looks like the child. That's putting the cart before the horse. The child looks like the father. Now, in an infinitely deeper sense, don't you see, the creature isn't there already knowing what he is without the need of looking like somebody and then saying whether there is somebody that looks like him. Well, now, just one more minute. Then I can't explain it. It has been developed, and through Abram Kuyper notably, and Herman Bobbing. I can't give you all of those materials, but they're always somewhere available. Incidentally, if you can ever buy or steal that little book, The Infallible Word, written by the faculty here, most of the early members, just go ahead and do it, will you? Sure it is. Well, let me start with your first question. Because isn't logic there, his own humanity, because it appears in that system, no. get in the way, too. No. Now, look, in the first place, what you said about Aristotle, about Aquinas, what he says, of course, what he's, our friend here says, that the god of Aristotle is the god of essence only. And, and Moses, by saying, I am, it brings in being, isn't so? Therefore, that's the God that we Christians write you are. But the point is that those are still identical. They are a reference to the same thing, the essence God. In other words, he bases his whole philosophy in so many words upon Aristotle's philosophy of the analogy of being, Parmenides. You can't possibly deny that. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. I wish you would take time to read this little book. Right. Well, that's what I was just saying. It's the metaphysics of Exodus, which is inherent in Aristotle, which isn't. Don't you see? Exodus is that God is the creator of man. And the Aristotelian God is anything but the creator of man. Yeah, all right. Therefore, he's trying to bring together the God of Aristotle and the God of Christianity. And then he says, we Christians, by faith, receive this notion because we believe the Bible. Therefore, we can't know anything about that God of being, the Exodus metaphysics. That's faith. But what we know is Aristotle's principles. In other words, he does identify them. Now, what was your, will you bring up the second question next hour? Huh? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>